Hello. Why don't you want to talk to me? Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You're making popcorn? Uh-huh. I only eat popcorn at the movies. Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? Oh, just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. What comes to mind? Um, Halloween. Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more credit or if they should stay buried. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sohini. And today, to wrap up our horror month with a Halloween special, we're talking about the Scream franchise. The first movie of the franchise kicks off one year after the murder of Sidney Prescott's mom, when Sidney finds herself targeted by a killer in a ghost face mask terrorizing the small town of Woodsboro. The original trilogy started in 1996 and was directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. The second and third movies came out in 1997 and 2000 respectively. The same team returned in 2011 for the fourth movie, but the latest movie released in 2020 2022 had a different creative team behind it. Well, Wes Craven was the one behind Nightmare on Elm Street, and when I was going through reviews, a lot of the ones I found said he revived a tired genre or whatever, with the first Scream at least. So that seems to be the consensus. And we have quite fond memories of Scream, but it isn't exactly the most well-regarded movie, either because it's seen as too much of a joke or a slasher movie that you can't quite take seriously. This is even more so the case given the less than stellar sequel that follow. So today, we want to take a look at Scream and the rest of its franchise with a bit of a critical eye to see the real merit buried under certain prejudices towards the genre and its reputation. As you say, we both have quite fond memories of these movies, but I actually didn't realize how much I liked the first movie until I watched it with more of a critical eye. In a lot of horror movies, it's very intense. And this is the case with this movie too, but it's interspersed with witty commentary. It's self-referential. It's referential towards the existing canon of horror movies. There's also some important commentary in it about society and the way we treat certain incidents in the media. The first film, at least, manages to balance all of this quite well and in a way that makes it stand out from existing horror movies. Yeah, when I watched this the first time, I watched it as an entire trilogy. I do remember it being a really fun time and I absolutely loved it. And I think at the time, because there was only the original trilogy, it was overwhelmingly positive. So at the time, I thought the Scream trilogy was just so wonderful. But now that we've watched all five, it is overwhelmingly bad because <laughs> the only good ones are the first and third one. And so the bad ones like outnumber the good ones. And now I, it's so tainted. Yeah, it's simple math, really. <laughs> but I still have so much love for the first movie because it really is so well done. Yeah, and I think that's going to be our thesis for this episode <laughs> yes. that we personally think the first and third movies are the best of the franchise, which kind of seems to go against popular opinion. We were very surprised to find out that the highest rated movie in the franchise is the second one. Unbelievable. With 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. A crime. <laughs> Worst movie I've ever seen. Worst movie I've ever seen tied closely with Scream 4 and the 5. fourth one. 
The current rankings as they are is like this. It's the second movie rated best. Then it's the first movie. And then it's the latest one from 2022. Then we have the fourth movie. And last, we were baffled by this, is Scream 3 with 41%. My god, the only decent movie of the sequels is the third one. I cannot believe that it is the worst rated movie of the sequels. I think it's rated so badly because there had been two Scream movies before it. Like, I think people were just tired of it. It's definitely, like, recency bias, except the recency bias is negatively impacting Scream 3. Yeah, I think the point of these movies is that they do follow a certain formula. And I think the predictability in some aspects, it interfered with how they perceived the actual story and how the movie was crafted. If it had been a couple of years, but not long enough that you've had enough of a break, it makes sense that people were just overall tired of it. But in this essay, we will argue <laughs> that <laughs> Scream 3 does not deserve the slander. Yeah. The first Scream was pretty well received when it came out in 1996. This is a review from Entertainment Weekly that reads, Poised on the knife edge between parody and homage, Wes Craven's Scream is a deft, funny, shrewdly unsettling tribute to such slasher exploitation thrillers as Terror Train, New Year's Evil, and Craven's own A Nightmare on Elm Street. I think that's great. <laughs> this is a great understanding of what the movie was aiming to be. Because it isn't just a pure horror movie, it pokes fun at the tropes that you often find in horror movies, it intentionally parallels them, and it subverts our expectations. Yeah, for sure. And it's not supposed to be the most sophisticated or thought-provoking horror film, you know? It is in the sense of putting forth a conversation about film and about the genre, but it's not like a highbrow horror film about humanity and whatnot. So I think this review just really gets what the movie was trying to be, and it is is a movie for people who love the genre. Yeah, absolutely. And this is why I was kind of confused when I read a review by Variety that said, The pic's chills are top-notch, but its underlying mawkish tone won't please diehard fans. And <laughs> I think this is a bit of a misread of what this movie was trying to do. I think it's especially drawing diehard fans into this inside joke about what their favorite movies like to do. I think diehard fans would love this kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge attitude. You know, movies in general are sometimes taken quite seriously and with good reason, but I don't think it hurts to once in a while take a step back and treat it with a bit of lightheartedness. I think what that review is saying is that this movie isn't for snobs. <laughs> <laughs> and that can't be counted as a flaw either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is definitely for diehard fans who can make fun of the things they love. We're doing this a little differently today because we're talking about an entire franchise. We'll be going through Scream 1 chronologically and discussing what works and what doesn't and how the later movies compare. Alright, so Scream 1 starts off with the now infamous scene of high schooler Casey getting a phone call. Yeah, so this is the first kill of the movie and... Something that I really liked is the shot of the popcorn on the stove. I see it expanding and it just really builds the tension in the scene and it'll pop like the tension will. <laughs> <laughs> 
I thought the exact same thing. And they do it again later. They have these moments when the tension is slowly building. They'll focus on this one object or on this one shot. This isn't quite a one-to-one comparison, but it is a moment where they focus on something in the background, like you said. So in the third scream during the first kill, they kill Conwary and his girlfriend. And Con had been racing home. And when he gets there in the background, it's Con on TV. And it's him talking about the recent epidemic of road rage. (laughs) Right after his own road rage, I suppose. (laughs) It's a really fun detail. Yeah, you're right. And the mundane contrasted against the horror of what's going on in the forefront, I think is really powerful. The example I was going to mention is Ghostface is stalking Sydney in school. And when Sydney is suspecting she might not be alone, there's a shot of the air vent. Just mentioning it like that feels so random, but when you're actually watching it, it just emphasizes the unsettling silence because you can suddenly hear the air vent. And obviously that's not natural in a, you know, lively bustling scene. So the way they have these very strategic shots, like you said, helps build the tension really well. Another thing I really liked in this opening scene is when Casey's parents come home and Casey is being murdered but she still has the phone on so her parents actually hear it happening and this is what I like about the movie. A lot of the horror comes from how horrifying it is to the characters instead of how horrifying it is to the viewer. It's not anything visual, it's very much, I guess psychological is one way to put it. The horror is that these parents are hearing their own child getting murdered on the phone and not being able to do anything about it. While the shot of Casey is horrifying, the horror that dawns is when the parents realize that they're listening to their child's homicide. That's where the horror comes from. That's the scare factor. The feeling of seeing gore and that repulsion and the feeling of fear are two different things. So when you watch Scream 4, you feel that repulsion from the gore. But Scream 1 is actually more about the horror that dawns when you realize what's happening. The first one comes off as more scary. It hits harder because those emotions are more grounded and we can relate to that terror. It's as if as the franchise went along, they just amped up the violence but tamped down on the actual human side of it. And this is what resulted in these very bland characters in my opinion and of course it's still horrifying to see a character being stabbed but it's not as impactful as you say because it's missing the humanity behind it from all aspects from a storytelling perspective and from how well they're able to build the tension it falls flat yeah and this is why like even in the reviews for the first movie they're calling it slasher film and it is a slasher film but lots of reviews were saying i guess it's good for a slasher film one review was like it's a cream of a really bad crop and I think the later ones are more you know generic slasher films because it doesn't tap into that terror that's rooted in such basic emotions but in this one it's not a soulless slasher film it's doing what it's supposed to which is evoking that horror 
actually a parallel here that I want to bring up is in Scream 3, both Khan and the girlfriend die, but they don't actually call the girlfriend in her residence, which is usually the MO. The one who has to breathe through all that time being terrorized is Khan, who is on the phone. So the phone is a way to get to the person who has to endure the horror and who is being terrorized, not necessarily the one being killed. It does turn out that he does get killed. But what I'm saying is the killing isn't the point. The point is the phone call and the tension. And that's where the horror is. There's this one part that made me so upset about the second screen movie. See, the phone call is supposed to be an omen, right? He, like, Ghostface isn't just calling for fun. <laughs> There's this part where, like, Randy gets a call from Ghostface. And he, like, stops and then goes to tell everybody else that it's Ghostface. And they have, like, a whole conversation while Ghostface is still on the line. It was so ridiculous. Like, are we supposed to believe that Ghostface is just chilling, like, <laughs> waiting for Randy to get back on the line with him? Once you pick up the phone... There's no, like, uh, can you hold? <laughs> it felt like such a mistreatment of the excellent use of the phone call in the first movie. That was a great point. So after the first kill, we are introduced to our protagonist, Sydney. She's pretty important. Yes. Note that down. <laughs> yes, you might want to remember her name. Yeah. So we see her in her room when her boyfriend, Billy, sneaks in. Now, what do we think of Billy? He's so slimy. Like, I kind of respect that from the get-go, they just establish him as a creepy dude. And they kind of highlight this later on as well, when Randy is going over the rules of a horror movie or whatever. They were like, you gotta stick to the basics. Like, sometimes the most obvious thing is the correct conclusion. So, like, I don't hate it, but I'm just like, Sydney, why are you dating this dude? I have a similar impression to yours. I think it's bold of them to immediately present the bad guy as the bad guy yeah. <laughs> i don't think we're supposed to like him and we don't so that's successful but yeah then there is the very logical next question of why is sydney with him and i think she just has questionable taste in guys yeah, I was gonna say the same. It is consistent. Like, all of the guys Sydney dates in this franchise are really shitty. Yeah, it goes from a scale of, like, murdering people to serenading her <laughs> in a cafeteria. So you decide. Yeah, in the second Scream movie, her boyfriend is... He's so shitty. <laughs> <laughs> He serenades her in the cafeteria, like he said. But while that is horrifying, the scariest part of that movie, if you ask me, <laughs> he also like keeps ignoring Sydney when she breaks up with him. Every single one of these movies has a boyfriend who wouldn't take no for an answer. You're right. One thing I really like about this introductory scene of Sydney's is there's this one moment where her dad is trying to come into her room, but the door is blocked by the closet door. And we see that this is something she does as an extra measure of privacy. And I love how this is such a small thing, but it comes back into play at a really crucial moment. Yeah, and they do a really good job at establishing habits and settings because following this, is a scene where they're at the high school and she's hanging out with her boyfriend and her best friend Tatum and I guess her boyfriend, Stu. And they're establishing both these boys as like really... They're not stand-up characters. Yeah. And it's so in your face how flippantly Stu treats the murders that you don't really take him seriously. I never for once thought it was him. 
his character is portrayed in a way that's so easily dismissed as the side character that's just there to be obnoxious or whatever else that I didn't quite give him any second thought. Throughout this franchise, it's a thing where like you doubt every single person, every single character of being the killer. Like it could be anybody, and that's like a big thing in the franchise. They talk about it in universe as well. But I think in the first movie, it wasn't even that big of a thing. I think you are right. The conversation is a lot more natural. They're discussing what happened, but they're not necessarily suspecting each other. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. There's definitely a more explicit, it could be you, but it could be you thing in the later movies, especially the scene that comes to mind is the fifth movie where the group of friends pinpoint the main character as the potential killer. It's very much a part of the main plot, the suspicion of each other. And it's not a bad thing or anything. It's just like something that stood out to me this time around because I realized that in the first one, like the suspicion, like you said, comes naturally. It's just an aftermath of everything that happens. Whereas in the later ones, it's because it's a thing to suspect everybody. Yeah. And I don't think that in itself is necessarily a weakness or anything, but I do think that potentially it's symptomatic of a bigger issue with the later movies. In the first movie... There is discussion of horror movie tropes and the movie is very self-aware. The later movies follow this pattern, but I don't know, there's just something... Forced. <laughs> yeah, it's as if the story is put on hold so that the characters can have these predetermined conversations. And it's almost as if it's a paint by numbers. The pace is just ruined by these shoehorn discussions. It's almost as if we have to have them, otherwise it's not going to be like the Scream movies that we're used to. I think they should have been able to do it well because in the first movie, it is also formulaic. Like that's the whole point, right? That it follows a very clear path that's been carved by preceding movies in the genre. However, they still manage to have things happen because they're natural follow-ups to the previous scenes, because they're natural conclusions to the overarching plot. So they show that these formulaic things happen naturally within the universe, within the story. Because no matter what you do as a character in this movie, you're doomed. A horror movie is going to turn out this way because that's just the way it is. And it's this whole conversation about it. Whereas in the later ones, they put it in because they needed to be there. They don't craft a story that naturally leads these characters into the situations that fall into the formula. Yeah, I think the first movie, it becomes, if not a criticism, then at least a questioning of the tropes that we're used to from typical horror movies. Tatum, Sydney's best friend, is from the beginning branded as that girl who's eventually going to die. But the way she's portrayed, the way she interacts with the different characters around her makes her such a compelling character that we can see that she's a lot more than just what she's objectified to be. Whereas in the fourth movie, when we have our first kill, Ghostface says something about her just being that basic first kill and she retorts with something about her IQ and great point average. And I understand that there's not time to establish much about her personality, but it just felt on the nose. You know, that's a great point that we don't get a lot of time to establish that she's not just this stereotype. However, they do get this opportunity with the next kill, who I would argue is also their like sexy kill of the movie. It's one of the main character's friends. And we had 
plenty of time to get to know her. But we literally don't know anything about her except for the fact that she's hot, I guess. And again, it's Scream. It's supposed to be that way. But the first one manages to do these tropes because they are starting a conversation about it, because they want to poke fun at it and criticize it one way or another. And the later ones fail to do that. We don't need the later ones because they can't add anything new to the conversation. This is sounding familiar. (laughs) Strong Jurassic Park vibes. (laughs) The first scream, the point is to have a conversation about the genre. It's a love letter and a criticism all at once. And the later ones, what is the mission statement? Instead of making these tropes really fun or funny or smart or, you know, like there's a twist to it. This time they're just making a shitty slasher film that would be made fun of by the first movie. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. In the second movie, there's like a film class and they're sitting there discussing movies. But something about it just feels so disconnected from the story. They have a conversation about art being responsible for people's actions. And while that could be an interesting conversation, they don't add anything to the conversation in this movie. They kind of make some points like with the bad guy at the end, but it's nothing interesting. They fail to make any kind of commentary on it the way they do in the first one. Yeah. In the first movie, we do get these moments where the characters, they're making some very obvious references. But the difference is, in the first movie, they're having these discussions to lay out certain tropes and address the speculations that the audience might have so that they can parallel them and subvert them Whereas in this discussion happening in film class, where they're just explaining the movie, they're not depicting the themes through the characters and the plot. The characters are just used as mouthpieces to talk about the underlying themes. It just does nothing for the movie. It just slows the pace down. It tells us nothing about the characters. It also kind of sounds like the dialogue is making a retort at any critics who might have suggested that movies like Scream could impact real-life violence. It's reminiscent also of a discussion in the fifth movie where they're talking about requel rules, like a remake, sequel, whatever it's supposed to mean. I don't know, the the girl was talking really fast and I didn't didn't care to catch a lot of it. But she was like talking about how fans get angry if you deviate too much and they just referenced fans numerous times and maybe part of it has something to do with the reveal at the end because they were angry fans or whatever. But it also just seemed like the writers were almost accusing fans of the original franchise as if they were kind of saying, yeah, we get it, you're going to be angry no matter what we do, but we don't care. It just seemed like that kind of attitude, which is such a disservice to the initial sentiment that these movies were made with, at least the first one. I think it was very much an expression of it's like a shared appreciation for these movies and to stomp on that in the fifth movie and kind of alienate people who might really be passionate about this franchise. I think it just shows a lack of care. You know, I think you've hit the nail on the head. They're just mouthpieces for the writers. The meta aspects of the first movie informs the movie itself. So these moments are actually in conversation with the movie, not in conversation with the audience. When they're talking about tropes of a horror movie, when they're talking about rules, they're not saying these things to tell the audience like, yeah, we know there's always some big breasted girl that gets killed, but we're going to do it anyway because we don't care. 
they're saying it to the world of Scream. It's just like these characters like conversing with the material. But what I do like is the follow-up conversation these characters have about how sequels suck and are by definition inferior films. And I think this is more in line with what the first movie successfully did, which was poke fun and acknowledge itself and not take itself too seriously. I think it was on the right track with that and it could have played with that, like the idea of sequels and what typically happens in sequels. But to me, it just doesn't feel as tongue-in-cheek because the movie almost seems too sure of its success to the point where it's just too self-indulgent and it's too blatant with its self-references and self-congratulation and this to me comes across in just the lack of thought that's pretty apparent in the characterization and the plot and even small things that at least for me, they took me out of the story. Like the way they kept referencing Friends actors was such a small thing, but it just annoyed me so much. <laughs> you got so mad every time they bring up a And the fact actor. that you say every time to me is just proof that it happens too much. It shouldn't be happening. There's a review from the Washington Post on Scream 2 that reads, Early on, Randy suggests of sequels that by definition they are inferior. That may be, but Scream 2 is more disappointing than it is inferior. Like its predecessor, it's both frightening and funny, just not as singularly classy. And I pretty much agree with this. Like, yeah, you can say sequels always suck, but lampshading it that way isn't going to make me forgive you for being a bad movie. <laughs> It was almost as if they weren't going to prove themselves wrong. They were just giving us a disclaimer. <laughs> like, this is what you're in for. I also was not sure how I felt about the second movie referencing its predecessor so blatantly. Because in the first movie, I think what makes it fun is that it's looking at the entire genre and the repertoire of horror movies at our disposal that we can critique and analyze but after the first one i think it becomes too self-indulgent yeah very full of itself the first scream movie is a love letter to the genre to horror films and it is dissecting the horror genre whereas the later movies aren't about horror films it's about scream i don't know that it's like a bad thing i guess but like it's definitely not what the first movie is you know it's just like a different kind of thing that they're doing now yeah i i think they set out a different blueprint for themselves where they're referencing the franchise and the legacy of scream which is fine but i don't think they use it in a satisfying way yeah and it's like the conversation about the horror genre is like very intertwined with like discussing humanity and it's discussing the way we treat each other and relationships and blah 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 and that's like inherent to any narrative and that's why like discussion of a certain genre will inevitably end up being about those core topics but just discussing scream it doesn't inherently connect to like something that's more grounded to human emotion and unfortunately i find a discussion about a genre much more compelling than a discussion about one single franchise <laughs> the next attack is finally on sydney <laughs> finally as if you've been waiting for it <laughs> yeah. but 
she's at home alone because her dad is away. We also find out here that her mother was murdered a year ago. And there's a lot of mystery around that. And so she's waiting at home for Tatum. And she gets a call from Ghostface. And she gets attacked. Of course, there's a big contrast between the first kill and Sydney. Even from the beginning, when Ghostface starts calling her, she's not entertaining him. She's not into horror movies, and she's aware of those horror movie cliches. When Ghostface asks Sydney what her favorite scary movie is, and she says she doesn't have any, we wondered if Ghostface has a book of scripts, like a telemarketer, <laughs> <laughs> aligned for every scenario. And so Hini posits that if this had been a different genre, Ghostface could even ask, What's your favorite rom-com? <laughs> I don't think it even has to be a different genre because <laughs> yeah. you can bring up certain rom-coms that read like horror movies. Yeah. Imagine if Sydney had just been like, oh, I don't watch horror movies. What about rom-coms? You watch rom-coms? <laughs> I've got a favorite rom-com. <laughs> and Ghostface is like, um, I guess. I like When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing. How does Ghostface not trip on his robe? That is a really good point, honestly. It seems like he would. Yeah. Whenever Ghostface just falls. Like, obviously, <laughs> a lot of the times it's because our protagonist, like, throws something at them or, like, shoves something at them. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes, it, like, there's, yeah. like, a chair in the way and Ghostface just, like, trips over it. And it just brings me so much joy. <laughs> yeah. I love the variety of objects that have been thrown at the different Ghostfaces. I think my favorite is when CC one of the victims in the second movie throws a potted plant <laughs> and then a bicycle. I guess that's why Ghostface <laughs> throws her out the window. <laughs> that was a great death scene. I loved seeing that. Like, it was Sarah Michelle Gellar and it was worthy of Sarah Michelle Gellar. It was very dramatic. And I think compared to... I can't believe I'm praising something in the second movie, but compared to something like in the fourth Scream movie with Olivia's death, the unnecessary and over-the-top gore, the scene with Cece is much more restrained. It doesn't resort to shock value to surprise the audience. Yeah, this is a Scream movie, and I wasn't looking to watch just a gore fest. Oh, another thing. The robe is such a, an inconvenient choice. <laughs> it has like tendrils at the ends like at the edges it must be so unwieldy he should have trimmed it well it seems like he must have you know made the little trims himself oh you you think he customized yeah. it yeah <laughs> because he was like on his bed like laying on his chest with his feet up in the air cutting little ruffles <laughs> he's got his little glue gun out yeah. He's watching When Harry Met Sally yeah. in the background. <laughs> I can imagine Billy and Stu doing this, actually. Those two seem tight. This is what they do when their dads are out of town. <laughs> I always have fun seeing how Sydney could possibly escape this attempt at her life every single time. I think my favorite one, actually, is in Scream 3. So in Scream 3, they're in the middle of production for Stab 3, which is a movie based on the Woodsboro murders. And 
The set is a perfect replica of the Woodsboro neighborhood, and it's got the house where the big bloodbath is in, and the house that's modeled after her own home, and she does get attacked in the set and so she's running through the house and it's as if it's her own house like she I don't know that she forgets but like we at least the audience forgets that it's a set like we think it's just a home because we remember what it felt like to be in Sydney's home back in the first movie obviously we expect when we open a door that it'll be her bedroom or whatever And then we get this rude awakening because when she opens the door, it opens to nothing and it's just a sharp fall to the first floor. And the way she escapes is by exploiting this expectation in Ghostface as well. And it's just so well done and so well crafted. Like it's these kind of things where everything falls right into place because this can only happen if they're on a set and a set can only happen if step three is happening you know it's like these things that are woven into the universe that lets this amazing moment happen in that movie they're quote-unquote jumping back into the original you know they're exploring backstories and everything and just the whole idea of the set being there and Sydney having to go into her past quite literally is already pretty well done. And having that as the catalyst of such a satisfying and smart escape for Sydney and the heat of the moment is just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I also really liked that scene. It brings back the horror Sydney went through in the first movie, and it's an embodiment of that and a better way of leaning on the first movie's legacy without depending on it too much. What I didn't like about the second movie is that it seemed like it was just trying to replicate the first movie's iconic moments. Even like frame to frame, there was that moment in the first movie where Sydney punches Gale, and I feel like they tried to replicate that in the second movie, and it's just, it's too derivative, it's boring. But in this movie, this is such a clever way of bringing back something from the first movie, but putting a twist on it and depicting it anew, especially because this movie doesn't take place in Woodsboro, but using the set to bring us back into that horrifying place is I think such a great idea. I think why this works actually is because there are reasons as to why we are bringing back something from the first one. The slap is only there because it happened in the first one and we want to do it again in the second. Whereas the set and running through the house that looks exactly like Sydney's house from the first movie has a reason behind it, thematically and in-universe. Thematically, it's because in the third one, we are exploring Sydney's past. What's happening is that Sydney has hidden herself away and she's distanced herself from everybody and lived an isolated life. And now she has to brave not only being around people again, but also the life that she tried so hard to run away from. There's a reason for this to be there that is present in the character's arc, in the plot, in the themes. It's very purposeful and the slap is just there for the sake of it. That's a great point and it's such a creative way of representing her psychological state as well because I wouldn't be surprised honestly if mentally she's still stuck in that house in that evening. The later movies don't even come close to reaching this level of depth when it comes to any of the characters. 
One particular example that stands out is from the fifth movie. We find out that our main character, Sam, is actually the daughter of Billy, who is one of the villains in the first movie. And this is something that she's struggling with, this legacy, I guess, that her father left behind and the fact that she's a murderer's daughter is something that's haunting her. And they portray this in what I would say is quite an uncreative way. It falls somewhere in the scope of like voiceovers. They use hallucinations. Sam just keeps seeing Billy once in a while and he eggs her on to be violent. It's just so unoriginal and it just feels tired. It's just meh. Also, like, it's so unnecessary. Like, why did we need the hallucination thing? Because you can also just portray Sam struggling. It's like it doesn't trust the audience to understand that somebody can have an internal struggle. Yeah, it's um movies for dummies. <laughs> yeah, it's like as if we can't understand what that struggle would be without her having to physically or verbally fight with her hallucination and it's a problem that plagues the fifth movie in other aspects as well they walk us through everything the writing is so clunky there's just long stretches of monologues about movies and long monologues of the characters telling us the story instead of showing us yeah that too i was gonna say when you were talking about how we should have just seen sam struggling we don't even get the scope for that we only see her telling her sister Yes, that is the scene I had in mind that I hate so much. The scene where she tells her sister about her parentage. It's so badly written. What she said was something along the lines of, After I found out, I went out and took every drug I could. And I'm like, what? Like, it feels like a 12-year-old wrote this. <laughs> so badly written. But we deviated <laughs> a long way. The way Sydney escapes from the killer the first time around, she uses the closet door to block the door to her room. This is where it comes back in a crucial moment when she's trying to survive. One thing I want to compare this to is the fifth movie. I noticed that Amber asks Tara, do you have your extra inhaler? I was like, is that supposed to be a clue? And then they have the whole inhaler missing thing later on. and. That was so low effort, even in the context of the scene where Tara's friends are just leaving. It just feels so unnatural for her to, before she leaves, just say, you have your inhaler, right? Because it's like she's not going anywhere. She's just there. Yeah, she's at the hospital too. Yeah, and comparing that to something like this with the door, it's just so much more powerful here because they draw attention to it really well the first time it happens. And so the second time it returns, you don't even have to think about it. You're immediately like, oh, I've seen this before. This is something the character does. And Sydney does it again in the third movie, the set version of her bedroom. I love the continuity and it's, again, just so much better thought out. So after the attack on Sydney, we see the aftermath. And part of that is the press that lingers on campus. This is where we're introduced to Gail Weathers, who is a reporter. And I think it's pretty impressive that this character is introduced as an asshole. <laughs> and over time, they get us to root for her. That's the key. <laughs> She's got layers. Yeah. She's like Shrek. She's like an onion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We learn that she wrote a book 
about Sydney's mom's murder and that has created tension between her and Sydney. And I really love the conversation between Sydney and Gail about this issue because we understand where they're both coming from. Gail is very much being a total dick, but we also know why. We know her motivations we know what she values to her this is just a job like if it's not going to be her it's going to be somebody else writing about sydney's mother and sydney is also understandably upset by this and she feels exploited and the conflict is so clear between the two of them and so natural everything falls into place this is what storytelling is conversation between Sydney and Gail in the first movie really reminds me of the conversation between Conway and Sydney in the second movie in the sense that they both have really clear like perspectives while Conway is hard to like and like his motives isn't like you know morally upstanding you could still understand his desperation because like his life just got derailed for no reason because he wasn't guilty whether or not he's weird and creepy this is a guy down on his luck and just trying to like just do anything to like get his life back on track on Sydney's side it's also really interesting because there must be like leftover guilt there or just like really mixed emotions about Conweary the confrontation between him and Gail and between him and Sydney are all really interesting dynamics, but we don't get a lot of it. Like, he only shows up for, like, really short periods of time, and I wish he had gotten more of him. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. When Cotton appeared on screen, it was like a breath of fresh air, honestly. Right? Because finally, here was a character with some motivation as to why they were doing what they were doing. And I really like that you drew a parallel between Cotton and Gale. Their dynamic could have been so interesting because they're both people who are willing to set aside their morals to get what they want. It was so interesting that Gale made him all these promises of fame, but that's not explored at all. They barely have any screen time together and they kind of just dropped that subplot. And poor guy, <laughs> once we do find out the ending, we realize how misunderstood he is because at one point yeah. he literally appears in front of Gale with blood on his hands. <laughs> and somehow he's still not the actual murderer. Yeah, He's just so unfortunate, like always in the wrong place at the wrong time. When that happened, I actually told you like, it would be so funny if he isn't the murderer because he just keeps getting into these predicaments and he isn't! <laughs> But the theme that is very prevalent actually in the first movie is the whole idea of like the press are vultures. They're very much portrayed as these people who exploit and they like pick up the crumbs of whatever is happening. They're like on the outskirts of campus and they're infecting the community. It's very much a, a swarm of these unwanted masses that are hounding our protagonists. I was also actually going to draw a comparison to how this very important theme is depicted in the first screen movie because I think it's done with a lot more thought and subtlety compared to the parallel social media theme in the fourth movie. I read on <coughs> Wikipedia <laughs> that the fourth movie is supposed to have some kind of commentary on the use of social media and the obsession with internet fame. Yeah, I did catch that. They have a conversation at the cinema club and Gail and Sydney are there and they're asking 
Robbie about the fucking camera that's slammed onto his head. It looks so ridiculous. But they're asking about it and he's like, oh yeah, you have to live stream everything now. When Ghostface does appear, Robbie doesn't even see Ghostface standing right in front of him. He sees him first through the camera on the screen. And I think this sort of thing plays into that theme quite well. I don't think they necessarily do this very well throughout the rest of the movie. I think it is definitely present, but it's very much like surface level. It comes into play again with when we find out who the killer is. It's Jill, and her whole thing is that, you know, she wants her 15 minutes. I guess you can say that the movie posits that this desire has consumed all of us, that, you know, one guy is live streaming his entire fucking life, and another is killing people for fame, and I don't think they do anything interesting with it. I don't think they make any interesting comments or any real criticisms, any new takes. Yeah, and anything they do offer up is not integrated into the story too much. It's just a lot of the main themes are also just explained by the characters, just straight up. They talk about it. <laughs> Whereas returning to the original movie, there is that in-your-face depiction of Sydney consistently getting harassed by the media who are shoving microphones in her face and asking her what it felt like to almost die. But also, we actually get some really important exposition through the news and specifically through Sydney watching the news and for us this is finding out the information for the first time but for Sydney this is reliving these traumatic events that she went through so we not only see the news but we also see her reaction to it and we're seeing both sides of it we're seeing the effects of sensationalization and dehumanization on this individual character this is such a wonderfully done critique of this culture and the society that we live in. It's almost like Sydney has no escape. Even when she's alone, she's forced to relive these horrific moments from her past. And they could have easily done something similar in the fourth movie because much like the news, social media is kind of inescapable for us. But we never get the sense that any of the characters are feeling smothered by it to the point where, they, where they're trying to get some distance from all these horrible things that are happening, but they can't because it's just so integrated into life at this point. That is such a great point. Lest we forget, this is a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> the presence of the press and how demanding they are does lend well to the genre and to what the movie's doing because they make us feel really claustrophobic. Like you said, the press is always there. So we see how suffocating it is for her to be in that spotlight. And that feeling adds to the horror aspect of the movie. You know, it adds a layer of terror and fear. That's what, to me, makes the first Scream so good. The feelings they evoke are three-dimensional and varied and not solely dependent on gore and visuals. It is these terrors that we all face every day. The 24-hour news cycle, the claustrophobia of always having to be on all the time. It's the idea of being watched. It's the idea of everything in your life, including traumatic events being picked at and scavenged for entertainment. And that adding to the horror of this movie 
But they also managed to show somebody like Gail who is flawed. But you also see like what's driving her and they humanize her. We don't think of Gail as being morally upstanding or anything. It's just another facet to her character. Yeah, I also really like her characterization. The way that she doesn't hide the fact that she wants fame and money. Later on, she basically bonds with Dewey, who's the deputy sheriff, over the fact that they both are looking for validation in their respective fields. So you can start to understand why she is that way. Because it's a product of being looked down upon and not taken seriously. And comparing her with a similar character, Debbie, in the second movie, who is a reporter and she's actually Billy's mom and one of the villains of the second movie. Comparing Gail to her or even Sydney's agent in the fourth movie, Rebecca. She's also similarly money and fame hungry, but we never get any underlying traits or we never learn about what's motivating her. She's just mean. <laughs> yeah, it's all very one note. But along with the press, the aftermath of Sydney's attack is Billy getting arrested. Basically what happens is that while he's in jail, Sydney gets another phone call from Ghostface. So that effectively proves that it couldn't have been Billy. So they let him go and he comes back to school. And he confronts Sydney and he's acting as her boyfriend. At this point, I think he's pressuring her into like sleeping with him or something. And he's making claims about like why she won't sleep with him. And it's all very strange. <laughs> he equates his mom leaving his dad to Sydney's mom dying. And Sydney's reactions are very justified. She calls him out on the absurdity of his logic. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely love that. In this scene, what he's trying to do is he's trying to manipulate her, right? I think at this point, Sydney's supposed to have gone over the suspicion and the fear that Billy's the bad guy. And just like, I don't know, everything just points to... Sydney should be falling for this not because she's dumb but just like the way everything is crafted but in the moment she treats it like a straight man basically she's she, it's like she's not in a movie she's just like what the fuck are you saying like that's <laughs> so messed up dude don't say that and I love that moment yeah what I really love about her character is that it's so well balanced she is strong but she has moments of weakness too she overhears a conversation between two students who are speculating that she might be the murderer and given everything that she's gone through this is of course very difficult for her to hear but compared to how outspoken she was with billy she doesn't actually confront these two girls she just lets them go and struggles with these things on her own she needs those moments to compose herself again and i think that's what just makes her more human i just wanted to compare this to a scene in the fourth movie i think we already talked about Olivia, who was attacked, and she was the friend of our main character in the fourth movie, Jill, Sydney's cousin. And after this whole attack happens, Jill barely reacts. I just don't feel like there's anything to her character to relate to. Given the fact that Jill is one of the culprits, I would expect them to make her even more compelling so that we like her and we're rooting for her so that that feeling of betrayal is tenfold when she's revealed to be Ghostface. 
the movie draws a direct parallel between Jill and Sydney. We even see a scene reminiscent from the first movie where her ex boyfriend is climbing through her bedroom window and Sydney actually says that when she sees Jill she's reminded of her own self and I really wish they built on this and established a stronger bond between the two because they have such a huge advantage having Sydney as a character there because we already like her and root for her. I actually hate that line. A big problem with Scream 4 for me is the writing and how they spell everything out but when it happens it's like we get it like she has like a, an expression on her face that clearly says it already it's also not like a real thing she like says it out loud she's like you remind me of a uh, me and i'm like real people don't say that shut up <laughs> she's so upset and i think another thing that fails jill as a character is that she just has no moments of weakness no moments i mean no moments really she's just so boring i was gonna say i she has no moments of anything at all <laughs> like what happens following this is the principal dies. It struck me in the scene how much I love the look of the first scream. His office is so brightly lit. Everything is so stark. I mean, obviously this was like in 96, so it's like on film. But especially for a horror movie, it's so fitting. You know, it's not about like the dark and dingy. It's quite the opposite. Yeah, you're right. I think it's one of my favorite things in horror movies when it's brightly lit it's human nature to be scared of the dark and we expect bad things to only happen in the dark so when a scene is so stark but it still manages to be scary i think that's when you know it's really good storytelling and they're doing a really good job of building that same fear as if you were in the middle of darkness I would argue that the starkness of how everything looks adds to the feeling of being exposed and vulnerable and that's what it's doing for the movie quite similarly to how darkness would in other movies like it's just the way the movie is using this tool instead of just like the inherent quality of this tool if that makes sense i can see that you know the look that's definitely missing from especially the fourth and fifth movie because it doesn't have a distinctive look and you can say that's due to uh whether or not it was shot on film or modern technology but that just means they didn't do anything to rectify that <laughs> it just looks so like generic and sanitized and it doesn't have the same traits and feel as scream we do get the scene in the first scream at the video rental place they have randy who works there bring up the horror formula and it works really well you know unlike the way it happens in the second movie like we talked about it's just really natural here it makes sense why they're talking about this within the setting and within the timeline of the movie it really cements that this movie really is about the genre it's always apparent throughout the movie it was never like a hidden thing you have to like dig for or anything to the point of like even the killer has told us that from the very first scene he's not hiding anything the movie isn't hiding anything from the very first scene they've told us that this is about horror movies and it will keep being about horror movies i agree that this conversation feels very natural to be had at this point in the story I want to compare it to this scene in the second movie. Sydney's in the theater and she's in a performance and everyone's wearing masks and there's this dramatic music. Everyone 
for some reason has knives and Ghostface just appears in the middle and terrorizes Sydney. The whole thing felt so contrived and set up to be perfectly right that it just felt so unnatural. Like, what are the chances someone would end up in that exact scenario? Compared to something like that, this conversation, even though the movie is making very obvious references to itself, it just felt so integrated with the overarching plotline. The fact that they're in a video store, it's been established already that Randy likes movies, he works in the store. The fact that Billy is there, which prompts them to start talking about who the suspect could be, it's not like it comes up out of nowhere. There's always a reason and it makes sense. It's never difficult to believe that this could happen. Even when it's talking about itself, it never takes you out of the story. Telling a good story is the priority. And I also really like how they indulge the different speculations that the audience could have. Again, it's almost like an inside joke because they're kind of teasing the audience like, hey, you know, it, it could be anybody. And they present all the possibilities to us, which I think prevents the audience from getting blindsided later on when the reveal happens because it's not someone who comes out of the blue. It's between the options that have been presented to us. Yeah, a trait that is missing in many movies now. <laughs> Producers want a twist that no one can guess. And like, if no one can guess it, it's a bad twist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think Scream 2 and Scream 4 fall into this trap because I think they're trying to just be smarter. Outsmart the audience. And that's not the point. Exactly. This is also an example of how the movie isn't talking to the audience. The way this is done is... Very much, this is Randy's expertise and very biased. It's not about just the movie definitively telling the audience something. Yeah, that's a great point. Following this is actually a party. But before the party, we get a conversation between Sydney and Tatum. And Sydney expresses insecurities about what Billy has said to her about not sleeping with him. And I really like Tatum's take on it and the way she comforts Sydney because she basically just tells her like that's bullshit you don't have to sleep with him I especially like it coming from Tatum because the movie does sexualize her something like that coming from her kind of character was just really nice to see and the conversation was just so casual and so honest I guess yeah it deals with a sensitive topic in a really good way this serves as such a good way of not only building the friendship between Sydney and Tatum, but it also helps establish Tatum's character more. Throughout the movie, the way she interacts with different characters, like the difference in the way she interacts with Sydney, with their friends, with Gail, with her brother, it's all very distinct. And you can see different sides of her personality come through in those interactions. If we just compare someone like Tatum to Sydney's friend in the second movie. There's nothing. All Hallie exists to do is just comfort Sydney. We don't know anything else about her. Yeah. But, you know, they get driven to the party by Dewey. However, before we get to that, we have a scene between Dewey and 
his superior. <laughs> <laughs> so in his favorite scene.、Uh, so the sheriff is actually smoking while they talk, and Dewey is eating an ice cream, <laughs> and he licks the ice cream every time the sheriff takes a drag of a cigarette. I just love the way that this conveys how young Dewey is in comparison to the sheriff, his lack of experience, the fact that he's emulating his role model. The sheriff drops the cigarette at the end of the conversation, and Dewey's just looking at it like, "I'm not throwing away my ice cream, though." <laughs> I'm with you. I especially love the way they exaggerate Dewey's youth, and it fits into his character motivations as well. Because as we briefly mentioned before, both he and Gale are looking for respect, but we can see that Dewey is not really taken seriously. Everyone calls him by his nickname. No one refers to him as the deputy sheriff or by his real name. Even he's. Striving to be at the same level of authority as his boss, but not quite there yet. Yeah, not having the same tools. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dewey's no Sam. He didn't go out there and take every drug he could. <laughs> he tried every ice cream flavor he could. But yeah, he does drive them to the party, and we actually see Kenny and Gale tailing them in their news van. And I love the shot of the van pausing on the road so that Kenny can drop his food wrapper. Because <laughs> like we we don't actually see the two of them, but we know by the wrapper hitting the ground, it's enough to tell us that it's them. Because we see consistently that Kenny's always snacking. <laughs> so it's a small detail, but I think it works so well because we we know these characters. Yeah, see, they they do such a good job at crafting the characters that even something like that. Just works really well, and we barely know Kenny. There are characters who have character, whereas the <laughs> later ones are so generic. But this is where we see some Gale and Dewey flirtation.、Mm -hmm. <laughs> It was at that point that I could finally see why they might be drawn towards each other when they started discussing the things they have in common, even down to their names. Because, like I said, people refuse to call Dewey by his actual name, and Gale—her name is Gale Weathers. <laughs> she sounds like a meteorologist, and she acknowledges that it's obviously something that has hindered her credibility. So even down. Down to that little detail, they do have similar struggles. But actually, we get oh poor Dewey. We get another kill. Yeah, Stu asks Tatum to get more beer, and yeah, when she's down in the basement, there's this point where there's a noise, and this cat runs through the. Flap in the garage door, and I think that's such great foreshadowing for how the scene is gonna go. The screen slightly tilts when Ghostface appears, and I especially like how extremely tilted it is here. Yes, you know, like a tilted screen is in the language of cinema. You know, it's danger. But what I love here is not just like, oh, it's smart that they're doing the tilted scene. The extremes of it—they do it to such an extreme degree, and this kind of. Underlines what I like about this whole movie. Everything is so heightened. Yeah, I think what needs to be heightened is heightened, and what needs to be subtle is subtle. There's a good balance. So after Tatum, a lot of things are happening <laughs> at once. Yeah, Sydney and Billy have a conversation. You also get to see a little bit more into Billy's head. Like you get to see what's motivating him. After they have sex, and Sydney like asks about the phone call. 
Yeah, so while they're having this conversation, the way I see it, I think she is starting to half suspect him again. I don't think the suspicions ever really go away until Ghostface comes out and seemingly kills Billy. And this is what sets Sydney running. And while this is taking place, these scenes are actually paralleled with the party goers watching a horror movie. And this is where Randy walks everyone through the rules of surviving horror movies. And I think this is where the meta discussion really comes to a head. Everything that Randy lays out is coming to fruition. This is like the breaking point. So all of this is actually being broadcasted into Gail and Kenny's van. But what's crucial is that there's a 30 second delay between the recording and the real life action. Yeah, it's a great way to build the tension, especially because Kenny and Gail become aware of the gap almost immediately. So when they're watching what's happening in the party, it's almost as if they're watching a horror movie and they can't do anything about it because it's already too late by the time they're seeing it. So there's this point where Sydney has run to the news van and she and Kenny are watching as Ghostface is creeping up behind Randy. And Kenny knows that there is a delay, so he runs out to try and help. But we as the audience know that Ghostface could be right there and that turns out to be the case. Ghostface gets Kenny. I'm hesitant to call it a twist, but it is. Like, it's a clever twist because we should already know, and yet it catches us off guard anyway, you know? It wouldn't have worked if we didn't know about the 30-second delay, and this is how we find out, because then it's, like, cheap. Yeah, so this is the final climax. Yeah. Sydney has been running from Ghostface all this time, but at this point, she's confronted with... A difficult choice because both Stu and Randy approach her saying that the other is the killer and she trusts neither. Because she's been through so much, I kind of understand her not humoring anyone anymore. <laughs> she's not taking any chances. And it's definitely what you scream at the screen, right? You're like, just fuck them. Just run to me. <laughs> so she just closes the door on both of them and Billy emerges injured, seemingly, from when he had been stabbed before. And he, I thought he's so dramatic, just rolling down the stairs. Especially considering he's not even actually injured. <laughs> I think he might have gotten more injured falling down the stairs than he did getting fake stabbed. <laughs> But Billy sh ends up shooting Randy and we find out that he's Ghostface. And when Sydney runs for help to Stu, we find out that Stu is also in on it. There's two of them. I was yelling. <laughs> I was just like, you gotta give it to Randy. He's been saying <laughs> it's Billy this whole time and he's right. <laughs> he did implicate himself a little bit, we have to say. He acknowledged that himself. But I honestly love this reveal. Comparing it to the reveals of the later movies, I don't think any one of them is as satisfying as the reveal in the first movie. I completely agree. And none of them are, like, as meaningful. Mm -hmm. I do like that the third movie breaks away from having two villains because we come to expect it. But with the second movie, I mean, I hate the fourth movie, but the, 
the reveal there was just laughable. It, I wasn't angry at it. But with the second movie, I just got so angry. And the main question I was left with is what makes the first movie's reveal satisfying and the second movie's reveal feeling cheap? And I think the first thing is just replicating the idea of having two ghost faces with no thought behind it like what is what is the intention what is the dynamic between the two characters it's almost like they just did it for the sake of it you're right like there's no meaningful relationship between them which is a big part of the first one yeah the way they interact you can tell there's a very clear dynamic between them and it's even indicated that billy might have been lying to Stu or hiding part of his motive for doing all of this and it's complex and interesting to analyze whereas between mickey a film student and mrs loomis who is preoccupied with the mother's revenge and whatnot the two of them together on screen it doesn't do anything especially because and this was my second point both villains in the first movie had important roles in the story billy was framed as a potential suspect from the beginning so we have this relationship with him as a viewer that we waver in our trust along with sydney and his motive was also given to us in a subtle way earlier in the movie because he has that conversation with Sydney where he's talking about his mom. And to contrast that with the two villains in the second movie, it's characters who had no bearing on the story. We didn't know them. We didn't get their motivations. So it's like, why should we care about them? Their motives were not peppered into the story either. Like Billy's mom is not mentioned anywhere at all in the story not even a hint of you know billy's mom is back in town or <laughs> i don't know anything they could have been like because this is scream 2 so it's about the aftermath of everything that happened in scream 1 and it's like everything that went down with the woodsboro murder not only scarred you know sydney and all of the victims but also billy's family like they've been hounded by the press they've been through hardship there could have been a whole like theme throughout the movie that would have made it so much more interesting and relevant to the story. The fact that it was characters who are so inconsequential to the story and I think severely reduces the impact of the second movie's ending. It was so cheap. Exactly. It was cheap. An ineffective way of pulling the rug out from under viewers. And I hate it. Sorry. The end of my rant. I agree with everything you said. The idea of a mother's revenge would have been really interesting. Like, I love that concept, but they didn't do it well or at all. <laughs> it's also like, Mickey wasn't even like that big of a character. Yeah. And Billy and Stu were such big parts of the movie. Yes, you can't take them out of the movie without ruining the story. Whereas both Mickey and Mrs. Loomis, they have no impact at all he's just there to talk about moral stuff in the beginning and then appear again at the end wielding a knife yeah with billy and Stu, you are supposed to like suspect them or like think of them as strange and the whole time like it was never about catching you off guard it was just about the horror of the fact that it is them after all I'm thinking, you know, just get rid of Mickey altogether because his motivation also has nothing to do with Billy's mother's motivation. It's more like he said something like, 
I'm going to blame it on the movies. And they were trying to bring it back to the moral discussion they were having. But it just fell so flat because they talked about it in the beginning and then they brought it up again in the end. It's such an afterthought. Yeah, exactly. It's, such a, it's like, get out of here, Mickey. You don't even fucking go here. <laughs> <laughs> this is between me and Billy's mom, okay? <laughs> There is a thing where, like, once they take off the ghost face mask and it's just their real faces, it's like the creep factor goes way down. <laughs> yeah. It's almost boring after that. Yeah. Point. But even more so with Mickey and Billy's mom, because, like, for one, we don't know who they are. <laughs> like, when Mickey was unmasked, I'm like, huh? Who is that? I don't remember you. This happens, like, for all the other reveals as well. I actually, okay, I know you disagree with me, <laughs> but the fifth Scream, actually the latest one, I am kind of creeped out by them still after they're unmasked. It's just like, they're so weird. <laughs> I did like Amber's fluctuating attitude. When she was, when she had the upper hand, she was very smug, but the moment things started switching, she instantly slipped back into like groveling teenager mode like i'm just a kid i didn't know what i was doing my point was amber was creepy i'm with you on that i think it does work best in the first movie because it is still horrifying that we find out that it's billy and Stu, or rather especially billy it's not that it's horrifying that oh my god this is a killer in front of me which is where the horror comes from in the later movies once they're unmasked you are scared of them because they're wielding a knife in front of you and they're trying to kill you in this one the horror comes from the betrayal and knowing that sydney has had this really intimate relationship with billy and the fact that apparently he's the one that she's been running from this whole time that established relationship makes the twists their past like it puts everything in a new light that is really horrifying <laughs> that's why even after they're unmasked they still have that creep factor yeah it's like it doubles down on the horror aspect yeah because it's scary for more than one reason it's psychological it's only horrifying because we have gone to know them because we know everything that billy has been for sydney the horror is more than just the gore you know it's definitely psychological it's it's very much rooted in the relationships and the way they play with those threads and like twist it so that it becomes horrifying yeah that's a great point what i love seeing here and we kind of touched on it for a second, but like the dynamic between Billy and Stu seems really well established. There's a certain intimacy between them as like partners in crime, as friends, as deranged serial killers. <laughs> they stab each other to like inflict wounds on one another so that they can frame somebody else. But they do it so sloppy that they start losing so much blood. It's almost bordering on over the top, but it just works because... Stu especially has been framed as consistently pretty unhinged throughout the movie. <laughs> so it's in line with his character, eventually with Billy's too, really. It's it's convincing that they would both resort to these extreme measures. And I think they try to replicate this in the fourth movie where they have Jill try to frame someone else for 
the murders and she inflicts wounds on herself to make herself seem like a victim. But it just doesn't work, in my opinion, mainly because Jill has been such a one-note character. She's just so utterly boring. So in the sequels, my favorite like final climax is in the third scream. The setting of the mansion is just like a fun house and there's the ensemble cast and they're just running around <laughs> causing mischief. And like this happens multiple times throughout the third movie where it's this ensemble cast just like screaming at each other and like trying to survive it's just fun it's like it's like watching scooby-doo it feels like a whodunit especially with the mansion and everything and there's a lot of laughs like it was just fun and it had an element of freshness to it as well with this slightly changed mo where it's not just the call it's that the caller is mimicking yeah. other people's voices as much as I enjoyed the third movie, I don't love actually the reveal of who the killer was. And like, it's a Mickey thing all over again. He was unmasked and I'm like, I have no idea who that is. Yeah, I was so confused about the cast and uh, crew and who's the writer, who's the director. I was like, is he an actor? I don't know. Let's just ignore the little the, that last bit of the movie. But apart from the ending of this movie, the other thing that I wasn't a huge fan of is the way they brought Randy back via a video that he made before dying. No! <laughs> I love that! <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about it because it involved dropping this new character out of nowhere. Because we never heard of Randy's sister before, but suddenly she's popping up. Just from a storytelling point of view, I'm not sure that I liked it. Well, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> the existence of a tape the fact that like it has to be a tape because randy's dead <laughs> like all of it is so convoluted it's so absurd and so convenient and for him to like note that he has to make this tape you know like about the rules of a trilogy conclusion so like he must think like it'll happen again it's just so funny and also in that scene you see dewey furiously taking notes but yeah, to, that scene was so like a big comedic moment for me in the in the movie. <laughs> Parker Posey plays Jennifer, who plays Gail, <laughs> and their performance was so good. This is the dynamic we should have had between Gail and Debbie in the second movie. Yeah, it, instead, all we got in the second movie was just characters walking around and reuniting and talking about stuff. But I think pacing is a real weakness of some of these movies oh yeah the second movie is so slow the scenes drag out for way too long and they show unnecessary things like there's a point where gail and dewey are investigating and there's this whole sequence of them walking down the corridor trying different doors and they're all locked so they're like oh hey look there is the auditorium <laughs> they walk down <laughs> the stairs <laughs> and it's so unnecessary <laughs> But yeah, maybe I think part of it, as you have been saying, is the emotions which help evoke more fear and tension. The moments of suspense are so sparse in the second movie. The one interesting moment is with Cece and then way later on it's when Gail is stuck in the sound booth and Ghostface is coming after her. I did like that scene but with the soundproof glass. It kind of 
reminds me of what you said about the first movie being stark because it's like you're confronted with this reality and there's nothing you can do all gail can do is just back away until her back hits the wall knowing that the only thing separating them is glass that was actually really well done I think it's definitely scarier, more harrowing than seeing just one arm waving through a little gap in the door. (laughs) We see that a lot. I'm surprised no one has ever just tried to take the knife away from them. Considering how many of these scary scenarios take place in kitchens with other sharp knives, you would think that, you know? Yeah, what happens if you just like duel them or something? (laughs) (laughs) Toss that gauntlet. Challenge him to a duel. (laughs) but at the end of all of these movies the bad guys always die and you know i actually really like the way Stu dies because it's the tv that kills him it falls on him and Stu is the one most motivated by movies yeah that's a great point i liked how it was always playing in the background of this final scene it's underscoring everything that's going on and it's it's like it just never lets you forget (laughs) what you're watching so final thoughts i want to continue hating on the second movie (laughs) (laughs) but what i do like about the second movie is how they highlight how much of a cultural phenomenon this franchise has become like they're talking about stab but of course it's referencing scream i do think it's a bit over the top how the audience is so entertained but The fact that when Maureen is attacked and people mistake it for a publicity stunt, I think that does highlight well how blurred the lines have become between reality and fiction because people lose sight of the fact that these are real things that have happened to real people. They're just so caught up in the entertainment aspect of it all that it's kind of like we are now doing what the media was doing in the first movie where where we're not really seeing these people as real anymore they're more like props killed for entertainment yeah you're right oh my god the one okay the thing i hated most in scream 4 is the fact that they just completely disregarded dewey's disability like they just pretended it never existed they made him sheriff and like the whole point that he can no longer be sheriff because he lost so much in Scream 1. He lost his sister, he was injured severely that he lost his career. Those are really interesting facets of his character. They're not pretty and polished and, you know, he may not be handling any of it very well, but that's what's interesting about Dewey. I'd go so far as to say it's, like, really offensive that they just, like, erased his disability in the fourth movie yeah and i really hate the idea of having these characters who go through these really difficult things and come out of it looking completely fine a lot of the time it is emotional and psychological trauma which is valid but they do also go through a lot of physically taxing situations 
it's unrealistic for them to come out of it exactly the same as they were before. And I really liked that Dewey had these lasting physical consequences of what happened because it was very real. It was a serious thing that happened. And you're right, it's really unfair and kind of ableist, really, to say that a character is not good enough if they have a disability and that they're just going to completely ignore it. I do think it's an extension of them completely ignoring Dewey's character as a whole as well like they take away the facets of his character that make him so interesting and good like the fact that you know he's so kind I really like that about his character and they completely took it away they took away the basis for his and Gail's connection and just made him into something else but I enjoy Dewey's character in Scream 5 immensely. He has his disability back, he's divorced from Gail, and he's sort of like fallen into this rut. He's lost his job, and he's struggling with alcohol abuse, and he's just this like hardened, bitter person at this point. You can kind of understand why he is the way he is, and I don't, I just really enjoy his character, but not only that, but his portrayal especially. And I love what his character has become. Not because like, oh, he's become so inspirational or he's become a great character. No, he's on a downward spiral and he's not perfect. And he, he's done some pretty shitty things. But it makes for a great character and a really compelling story. And again, like you said, a big part of his character is his kindness. And we definitely see that here. Yes. Exactly. I really, really like that his character is informed by everything he's been through, both in terms of his experience and knowledge and also, again, his situation and the lack of his career prospects. And yes, his compassion as well was the best part of this movie for me, I think. Yeah, unfortunately, he dies. <laughs> Don't remind me. I'm ignoring that, that fact. The movie ended for me at the moment. Dewey died. I, I didn't care about anything else after that. <laughs> Truly. You know, we thought the heart of the franchise lies in Sydney, but it's actually Dewey. <laughs> I think you're right. So I actually really like that shot of, you know, Dewey leaving the elevator and the doors closing on his face. And we get the sequence, like, he's gearing up for a fight and he, like, pulls out his gun and it's, like, a western or, like, the beginning of, like, a wrestling match or something. Like, Dewey versus Ghostface. <laughs> But the thing that I actually really love is Ghostface, his parting words, not Dewey's parting words, but Ghostface's is, it's an honor. And I think it's just, it's a pretty fucking great line. <laughs> yes, and in the context of who the killers are in this movie, I think it fits very well. It serves the double purpose, really, because within... That universe, it's that character who's a fan of the Stab series and knows who Dewey is. And then also, it's almost like an homage to the character of Dewey in the Scream franchise. And it serves that double purpose of acknowledging what we have been through with Dewey. And yeah, respect for surviving in the franchise for so long. After this point... Not that I cared much before, but after this point, it was kind of difficult for me to care about this movie. Except I did like the reveal near the end that they were in Stu's house where it all began. Yeah. And they zoomed out like in an exterior shot. And it was kind of 
really dramatic and it kind of worked. I, I really liked that. Yeah, I agree. I actually really like it as well. However, I like it best in isolation. Like in the moment, it was good. And then I remember Scream 3 existed and I'm like, ah, we've done this. They did it better. Like there's so many layers to it in the third Scream. Yeah, the fact that it was a set and like the idea of making these very real traumatic memories into entertainment, everything intertwined to make it a lot more meaningful rather than just setting the same story in the same house again, just with different people. Anyway, so we hated a lot of this. <laughs> we put ourselves through a lot for this episode. So please rate and review. <laughs> please do. <laughs> so, in absurd conclusion, Ghostface has a book of scripts like a telemarketer that tells them what to say for every possible scenario. <laughs> yes, including a condensed summary in case you missed the last however many movies. Previously on stab <laughs> well have your opinions changed and would you recommend this franchise yeah absolutely my opinions have changed i would like to end on this review that i found from the new york times it refers to scream 5 but i think it works well for pretty much all the sequels and it reads Throttled by a corrosive self-awareness, the latest Scream is a slasher movie with resting smug face, so enamored of its own mythology that its characters speak of little else. And I think this captures the pitfall that each sequel kept increasingly falling into, where it became too self-obsessed, just too smug about its success so much that its characters became less and less human and more and more cardboard cutouts just there for the thrills and kills. And it wasn't about that essence of the first movie anymore, where it was driven by real raw emotion. And that's what made the first movie so powerful. So in all seriousness, I think the first movie is pretty much the only one worth watching from a storytelling point of view. And the third one has some strengths as well. But other than that, I would give the rest of the series a hard pass. Strong words. Yeah, my opinions have definitely changed. And I'm so upset. I'm just so disappointed. I think this franchise is best digested only as the original trilogy. And even then, I think the second you can easily skip. I don't want to just say like, the only thing I recommend is the first movie, even though it is the only good movie. <laughs> but I'll compromise and say, watch the trilogy, the original trilogy. Because like, even the fourth and the fifth don't e like barely even count. Like they're not part of the original series, but the original trilogy are actual Scream movies. <laughs> and you know what? If I have to suffer through Scream 2, so do you. <laughs> so. so, in conclusion, our disappointment is immeasurable and our days have been ruined. Next time, we'll be discussing another horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty horrifying movie, guys. Aquamarine. Which is quite a change of pace. If you have any thoughts to share on the movie, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com so we can share on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot.